Our scripture reading this morning is found in John's Gospel, uh, John 15. I'm going to be looking at verses 12 to 27, but, uh, but I'm going to read the whole of the chapter um, to keep it in context. So if, if you're able, please stand together out of reverence for the word of our God. John chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, once again, we pray that you would help these words to be applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would help us to see the example of Christ in all things. And you would help us to understand or write our relationship with you. 
whether we are truly disciples and following after you or whether we are still dead in our sins and trespasses, we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would work. Lord, that that you would, would strengthen me to do, again, what I could never do, rightly proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to do what we could never do and to rightly apply your word, to understand it, and to grow in our relationship with you through it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. During World War II, English Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill saw how the Nazi blitzkrieg had pounded its way westward through country after country, Poland, then Denmark, Norway, Belgium, Netherlands, and then France. After the fall of Dunkirk, Churchill knew that Britain was next on the list. So having seen the impotency of defending forces against such strategy, he evacuated the British troops, leaving only what were known as the Auxiliary Units or the British Resistance Organization. Guerrilla forces that were to go underground in the British towns and countryside once the country had been overrun. They would then hit the Nazi forces from behind, targeting ammunition dumps and supply lines and assassinating officers. It was a suicide mission. These men were only given rations for two weeks because the high command estimated that they would only survive for a maximum of that time before they would be killed. Now, thankfully, these troops never had to be deployed. The the Nazis were eventually defeated in France. But nevertheless, there is a war still raging. World War II may have ended with the surrender of the Germans and the subsequent surrender of the Japanese, but there is another war going on. And World War II was simply a small skirmish in this greater war. This war is being fought between the disciples of Christ and those of the world. And here with John 15, Jesus knew that he was about to depart. He knew that he was leaving his disciples to fight a battle. A battle between God's people, between disciples of Christ and the world. The mission of the auxiliary units was similar to that of the disciples of Jesus. Both were being left to fight for their country. One a physical country, the other heavenly. Both were ordered by their commander to take the fight to the heart of enemy forces. Both were fighting on a battlefield that had been completely overrun by enemy forces. Both were dedicated to a cause that was far, far greater than themselves. Both were far outnumbered, and both knew that they would not come out of their mission alive. Of course, the commander of one of these forces is a mere mortal, and the other is God himself. As I mentioned, one country is physical, and the other is heavenly. The weapons of the disciple are are infinitely more powerful than those of military forces, the word of God and prayer instead of guns, knives, and explosives. And the tactics were also completely different, love instead of hate, and bold proclamation instead of stealth. And the results are vastly different too, leaving life instead of death in their wake. 
Now, in the time of war, it's obvious which side people were on. In World War II, there was little doubt as to who was on which side. And in this war, you can also see who is allied to Jesus and who is allied to the devil. Particularly in places like China and Pakistan and Sudan and Iran and Uzbekistan, where the church is being persecuted openly. However, as our culture becomes increasingly post-Christian, you can see it here too. And moralistic, legalistic, man-made religionists will be exposed for who they are, while true disciples of Jesus will also be revealed. And here in John 15, verses 12 to 25, Jesus reveals two key characteristics of disciples. They'll be marked by love, and they'll be marked by hate. They'll be marked by love for the brethren, and marked by hatred from the world. The first is a a direct command from Jesus, and the latter is a result of obeying the commands of Jesus. This love and this hatred characterize Jesus, and it will characterize his true disciples. As disciples of Jesus, we follow his example. He loved, we love. He was hated, we will be hated. Verses 12 to 17, Jesus identifies the type of love that he commands in us. And then in verses 18 to 25, he identifies the type of hatred that we should expect from the world. So Jesus begins in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He had just told the disciples that keeping the Father's commandments is a requirement for abiding in his love. This was true for Jesus, and it's true for us. But abiding in his love is not just conditional upon loving one another. It actually goes both ways. It is impossible to love one another unless we abide in Christ. He is the vine, and we are the branches. Without him, we can do nothing. Nothing especially loving in the way that God calls us to love. Remember the greatest commandment, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And the second is like it, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. The love of Jesus and the love that Jesus requires of us can only flow out of a holy love for God. But here Jesus elevates the love that he requires from us far beyond even the love that we have for ourselves. He says we are to love as he has loved us. As he has loved us. The standard of love is the love of Christ for himself, that that Christ had for us. It's actually keep on loving one another as I have loved you. He's echoing the command that he'd set down in John 13, 34. We said a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. As I mentioned when we, when we studied that, that passage, that the command to love wasn't new. The command to love actually went all the way back to the beginning. But what was new was the as I have loved you part. 
To that point in human history, no one had ever loved the way Jesus loved his people. And obviously from the context here, Jesus is clearly thinking of the crucifixion. He says in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now his disciples didn't yet understand, even though Jesus had told them repeatedly what was going to happen, they didn't understand what was going to happen the next day. As Jesus was was crucified and killed, as he laid down his life for his friends at the cross, as he sacrificed himself to the physical abuse, but infinitely more than that, he sacrificed himself to the Father's wrath. And even, even worse than that was that he sacrificed his relationship with his heavenly Father as the Father forsook him on the cross in our place. Beloved, this is the standard for our love, the love of Christ. That perfect, holy love of Jesus. Anything less than that is sin. One way of describing sin is is missing the mark. So anything other than a perfect bullseye is missing the mark. Even a hair's breadth away from the bullseye is missing the mark. It is sin. Maybe you like to think of yourself as a loving person. You can probably quickly call to mind the nice things that you do for other people. Moms, as you cook meals and wash clothes. Kids, as you pick up your toys and help out with your siblings. Husbands, as you work long hours and spend time doing family devotions. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as you give of your time and your resources to the work of this particular church family. And and I've been the recipient of many selfless acts of love. Many by people here in this church. While we were in Australia, we were were greatly humbled and blessed as, as friends fed us and housed us, and one couple even gave up their bed for a week and a half. For Jane and me, now that's loving. And these things all glorify God, but have you ever loved the way Jesus loved? Have you ever reached his perfect standard for love? Have you? I know I haven't, not even for a second. Jesus reveals the standard in verse 13 again. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Actually laying down of one's life. Many years ago, I had a friend who was at his boss's cabin for the weekend when a fire broke out in the chimney. And he pulled one of his boss's children out of the burning building and went back in to get his boss's second child. But they never made it back out. They both perished in that fire. He literally laid down his life trying to save that child. But do you think my friend went to heaven? 
I remember as a new Christian being troubled by the fact that he probably didn't. That during the, the, the time that, that, I, that I knew him, he was, was a, a partier at partier doing the same things that I was doing. Living a life in rebellion against God. But I thought, surely if anybody deserved to go to heaven, it would be my friend who died in the very act of loving somebody else. Now, I don't know if at some intervening time he had committed his life to Christ, but I have no, no reason to think so. And that one act of selfless love could never atone for all of the sin that he committed. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I deliver up my body to be burned, now he's speaking there of, of martyrdom, but but. I think you can extend the application. If I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. It's not just the action itself, but the motivation. There was no doubt a loving thing that my friend did to sacrifice his life in, saving, in trying to save that child, but it, it wasn't motivated by the love of God. Jesus says in verse 14 that his friends obey his commandments. But obedience doesn't turn us, turn us into friends. Obedience reveals that we are friends. Let me say that again. Obedience doesn't turn us into friends. It reveals that we are friends. So we need to ask ourselves, even think about, about some of the most selfless things that you have done. Have they been motivated by pure, holy love for God and for others? And sadly, even the most loving of our behaviors often mixed with selfishness. Whether it's the hope that somebody is going to pay us back, or the desire to be noticed, or feelings of self-righteousness. All of these things contaminate the most loving of our deeds. But beloved, if you are a friend of Jesus, your desire is to love him like he loved you. And you will love him more and more as you grow in him. Because we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If his Holy Spirit is at work in us, then it's a guarantee that you will grow in the likeness of Jesus. But again, our friendship with Jesus is not based on what we do. Our friendship with Jesus is based on what he did. It's based on his life and his death and his resurrection. So we can be thankful that Jesus doesn't just love those who love Perfectly, because if that was true, then he died for nobody, because nobody loves perfectly. In this context, Jesus is among friends, and he's establishing the standard of behavior that is to guide friendships among them. But Jesus set the example of dying for us while we were enemies, dying for wicked sinners like you and like me. 
Please turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we're still weak, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that description was you and me, weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. These are the ones for whom Christ died. And so we see here in John 15 that Jesus commands us to love our friends, but in the Sermon on the Mount, he commands us to follow his example by loving even our enemies. It's pretty easy to love people who love us, isn't it? It's pretty easy to be selfless with people who, who you know are going to, to commit selfless acts back for you. That's really easy. But it gets harder when people don't treat you well. The love of Jesus is the love that calls enemies friends. And we are his servants, we are his slaves, but he calls us even more. He calls his disciples friends as he teaches them the truth from God. Think about the privilege to know the mind of God. D.A. Carson explains an absolute potentate demands obedience in all of his subjects. His slaves, however, are simply told what to do while his friends are informed of his thinking, enjoy his confidence, and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of their master's heart. Imagine being a confidant of the prime minister. Now, of course, we're, we're often disappointed with, with some of the decisions that he makes, but imagine if he was to call you up every day and to explain to you what he's doing, to explain to you his plans and his desires, his likes and his dislikes. His dislikes. We would count that as a privilege. But how much more to know the mind of God? Abraham and Moses were the only characters in the Old Testament to be called friends of God. God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And Abraham enjoyed that same intimate access to God. But beloved, we have access to the mind of God in a way that far surpasses even that of Moses and Abraham. We have seen the plan of salvation in Christ in a way that, that Moses and Abraham only stood, understood as, as shadows and types. Beloved, Jesus is a revelation. He provided the revelation of the mind of God for those first disciples, and he has provided the revelation of the mind of God for us. The same Jesus. The same Jesus who walked with these men 2,000 years ago and died for them. 
died for us. Give up his life out of love for the Father and love for us. But the love of Jesus doesn't just call enemies friends, it actually turns enemies into friends. Look at, at verse 16 of chapter 15. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you. This electing love was true for those first disciples, but it's also true for all disciples. William Hendrickson notes that on earth, friends generally choose each other. But the friendship of which Jesus speaks is different. It's one-sided in origin. It was not brought about by gradual approach from both sides, as is often the case among men, but by Jesus alone. Jesus chose us by his sovereign grace. Not because he saw potential in us. Not because he saw that we would eventually choose him. But because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. Turn please to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, there's many passages that I could go to to explain this, but... But we, we've done this as an exercise in, our, in the, the Wednesday evening Bible study. I've suggested that people take a look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, and ask, look at, look at the answers to the questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how, of this glorious choosing. This passage talks about, about these things. It's, it's, it's all for the praise of of God's glorious grace. So, so in your own time, maybe with your families, go, go back this afternoon and, and look at that passage again. And look how these questions are answered. The who, what, when, where, why, and how of salvation. Look for a moment just at verse 4. We see that the when and the why even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Beloved, it's not just election for salvation. It's election for fruit bearing, for his glory. Jesus chose us to bear fruit for the glory of God, verse 8. We all know Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But do you know verse 10? I've quoted it many times. We are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We have been chosen to be different. We have been chosen as instruments of His grace to live lives that bring glory to God as we show Christ to a fallen world. And the kind of fruit that Jesus appointed us to bear is abiding fruit. It's abiding fruit. It's no coincidence that Jesus used the same verb that he had used ten times in verses 4 to 10. Whoever abides in Christ 
will bear much fruit and that our fruit will abide. It will remain. Now, there's a kind of fruit that, that doesn't remain. I'm sure you've seen it in people's lives. Maybe it's, it's friends or, or family members or, or teachers that you used to listen to. They seem to have been powering on for the Lord, but then you find out about, about hidden sin in their lives or hear that they've walked away from the faith. In my opinion, there's nothing sadder. We need to let these things sober us. Let, the, let it be a warning against complacence. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. Jesus has chosen us and appointed us that our fruit would remain so that whatever we ask the Father in the name of Jesus, he would give it to us. Jesus here is returning again to the promise that he had given in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, and in in chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. If we abide in Jesus and his words abide in us, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. Now that's not talking about asking for a red Ferrari, as you might hear in some churches. There's a conditional aspect to answered prayer, but Jesus' main point here is that prayer is the means of bearing fruit. Prayer is the means of bearing fruit. When, you are, when the words of Jesus are abiding in you, when you are abiding in Jesus, what more do you want than to glorify his name? And that doesn't mean that you're not going to have requests. That doesn't mean that you're not going to go to God with, with physical needs. But you're primarily motivated by love for God and love for the brethren the type of love that he is calling us to in this passage. So let's just get really practical for a moment here. What are some of the ways that that we can love each other in this church family? Think about your practical, your personal context. Maybe it could be in practical ways, just thinking about the way that the Shelton Greens bless us. When we came home to to a, a bacon and egg pie in the, in the fridge and, and milk and a lovely card and a clean house. They blessed us that way. It might be watching someone's kids so that, that parents can have a date night. I'm not just saying that because we're about to become parents. <laughs> Maybe it's visiting someone who can't make it out to church. And these things get harder when, when differences come up. When we see sin, when people sin against you. Maybe it means going out of your way to encourage someone as you see evidences of grace in their lives, or even to admonish them when you see them in sin. Now, now, a lot of times that is not going to seem very loving. To actually go and to, to challenge somebody about their sin. But it's really the most loving thing that you can do if somebody's walking in sin. to humbly and gently approach them, to be praying for them. If I see you running towards a cliff, you can bet that I'm going to do everything I can to stop you from running headlong to your death. 
Maybe it means lovingly listening and discussing differences instead of smashing others with your opinion. Maybe it means offering grace for one another for shortcomings. Maybe it means forgiving somebody 70 times seven times. And the motivation for all of these things is the love of Christ for us. The only way we can do these things is because of the love of Christ in us. John says in 1 John 4, 19 and 20, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we need to ask the Lord to reveal ways to us that we can love God by loving others. We need to ask for his help to obey him in this. Do you realize that this is actually evangelism? This is actually evangelism. Jesus says that in John 13, 35. He says, by this will others know that you are his disciples because of the love that we have for one another. And when, when, we, when we love this way, God gets great glory for his name because we're doing what we could never do on our own. But now we turn from the beauty of selfless love to the ugliness of sinful hatred. As love is the theme from verses 12 to 17, hatred is the theme of verses 18 to 25. It provides a stark contrast, a night and day contrast. And as glorious as the love of Christ is, think about the hideousness of the hatred of the world. There are only two spheres, the church and the world. The church is the body of believers and the world is everybody else. It's comprised of those who are living in rebellion against God. Love characterizes the community of faith and hatred will characterize the world's attitude towards the people of this community because it characterizes the world's attitude towards God. The world hates the church because the world hates God. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It hated Jesus first. And it will hate his disciples. John says in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Expect it. Expect that the world will hate you. The world's hatred of Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning, back to the garden when Satan tempted Eve and when Adam sinned. The world hates everything that is good and right and pure and holy and loving, and it hates Jesus because Jesus is all of those things. And it hates us because we are becoming all of those things. If we belong to the world, the world would love us as its own. Remember years ago when I was working as a, as a diver at SeaWorld, and there was a, was a small team of divers, and 
it was, a, it was a kind of a, a close community. We spent a lot of time together in this little room doing these, doing these shows. And I remember one of the other divers saying to me that, that, that I was different than one of the other Christians who was there, that, that I was happy to, to listen to the music that they were listening to and to, to, to be more like them. Now, this person meant it as a compliment, but actually took it as an insult. And looking back, I see it now as, as a low point in my Christian walk. It caused me to, to, to take stock, to take a look at myself, and to, to, to see how I was more like the world than I was like Christ. Now, it was interesting when Jane and I just were in Australia, we went to visit SeaWorld, and some of the, the, the divers were still there. And I was was, I guess, not really that surprised, but, but one of the individuals who I was talking to mentioned the same person that I'd been compared to all those years ago and mentioned how, how he had become kind of well-known and, and he had had, to use his words, he had changed. And from his perspective, he saw it, from this other diver's perspective, he saw it as a good thing. But from a biblical perspective, it wasn't. And it was such a strange thing to, to, to go to a place, as I said, where, where I'd been for so long and had so many good friends, and then to be gone for eight years and have you know, some email contact and the odd Skype conversation, but to be gone for eight years and to see where people were at eight years later. And there were some times when I was greatly encouraged. See, brothers and sisters who had pressed on for Christ and had, had remained faithful because of God's faithfulness to them. But far too often I saw people who had once seemed so solid. People who had once seemed so committed to Christ and the church who, who were following the ways of the world. And I know in at least one, one instance we had an opportunity to be, able, to be able to sit down and challenge a brother. And by God's grace he repented. That was the highlight of, of the whole trip. But we need to ask the question. If somebody was to step out of your life for eight years and then to come back, where would they see you? How would they describe you? Would they describe you as somebody who has grown in Christ? Would they describe you as somebody who is more loving, who is more like Jesus than you used to be? Or would they describe you as somebody who is more like the world? Beloved, there's only two directions that we can be moving in. There's no such thing as sitting still. We're either moving forwards in Christ or moving backwards. And if the trajectory of your life is away from Christ, even if it's, it seems to be increments from your perspective, if the trajectory of your life is away from Christ, then you are not in Christ. Now, I'm not talking here about those moments that we all have. 
When there's a time when you, when you fall back into, into a pattern of sin for a season. But what direction are you headed in? Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed into the image of Christ by his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. It's only by the word of God that you will know what is his will. You know, of one local church, and this was this really saddened me, but one local church in Australia that that's many, many friends have actually gone to this church. And the, the, the vision for this church is to build the world's tallest church steeple. Now, the only place you're going to find that in Scripture is in Genesis 6, in the Tower of Babel. That is not in the word of God. If you want to know God's will for your life, if you want to know what is is good and acceptable and perfect, what is the will of God, you need to find it in his word. To be transformed. And as you are transformed, the world will hate you. The world will hate you for it. Like Ishmael hated Isaac, the illegitimate son hated the heir. Jesus, even as he was example in love, he was our example. He is our example in hatred. Verse twenty: Remember the word that I said to you: A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We've already discussed the fact that the physical crucifixion, the worst part of the crucifixion of Jesus was not the physical part. The worst part of the, of the crucifixion was the, the wrath of the Father that was poured out on the Son and the separation between the Father and the Son for the first and only time in all of eternity. But just consider for a moment what the world did to Jesus. Crucifixion was the most shameful and the most painful way that sinful men could think of. In man's wicked imagination, it was the the most torturous way that they could kill anybody. And to my knowledge, it is still the most torturous, if not the worst, most painful way to die. As soldiers were trained to to, to separate flesh from bone with, with their whips, scourge you. And as you're there naked with, with, for all, for everybody to see, as you're beaten horrifically, As you're forced to, to, to take, carry your cross through the city streets as people spit on you and throw things at you. 
until you finally get to the, the place of crucifixion where you are physically nailed to that cross. As we've discussed before, it's actually not through your hands, it's through your wrists where all the bundled nerves in your hand go. And, and so in order to breathe, you have to put weight on those spikes. And so all those nerve endings in your hands are on fire. As gradually, over the, over the course of days, generally somebody would be asphyxiated as they grew weaker and weaker from the pain and were not able to carry the weight of their body anymore to breathe. Beloved, while Jesus was on that cross, this is the physical pain that he experienced. And he says that this is the the type of treatment that we should expect from the world. Not love from the world. We should expect this kind of hatred from the world because of his name. These disciples all of them apart from John would be martyred. Peter crucified upside down, as Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us. And that same legacy of suffering has continued to this day. Consider the, the cloud of witnesses from Hebrews 11, verses 35 to 38, who were tortured and mocked and flogged and in chains and stoned and sawn in two and killed with the sword. This has continued to this day. Many Christians around the world are still facing this kind of treatment. Now, the situation in Canada and in North America and Australia has not yet degraded to the point where Christians are facing that sort of persecution. But have you been mocked for your faith? Have people mocked you because you've taken a stand for righteousness when you have have not done what others do, when you have not participated in their jokes or their behavior? Have people mocked you for that? It's only happened a couple of times for me, but, but it's actually, when it's happened, it's actually been an encouragement. It's actually been an encouragement. And believe me, that is only because of the Holy Spirit in my heart. But Acts 5, in Acts 5.41, the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer, suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Do you see it as, as, as an honor to suffer dishonor for Christ? Love it, it's not a compliment to be, to be loved by the world. It is a compliment to be hated by the world. Are you looking for favor from the world? Are you looking for favor from the world? And I think if we're honest with ourselves here, we'll have to admit that at times we all do that. Whether it's it's by the way we dress or the way that we act around unbelievers, Maybe we laugh at at an off-color joke that we know we should not even be listening to. Maybe we we buy into what the world esteems. We all do it, don't we? And we have to be careful here. Sometimes people will hate you for being a jerk, and I'm not talking about that. Sometimes people will call it persecution when, they, when they're just being nasty to somebody else. 
We're to be humble and, and loving and gracious. Not backing off the truth for, for a moment. And that doesn't mean that there's not a time to get angry. But always with the honor of God and not your honor at the center. People get mad when they look at your life and it brings conviction because they know that it makes them look bad. Sometimes you don't even need to say anything. But just by the way you live your life, people feel ashamed. That's sometimes even true in the church. But those times when you lovingly confront somebody about their sin, the world is not going to like it. Jesus said in in John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Same thing here in verses 22 and 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not know that they are guilty of sin. So they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. D.A. Carson explains that by coming and speaking to them, Jesus incited the most central and controlling of sins. The rejection of God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God, and of decisive preference for darkness rather than light. It's not that they weren't guilty. Before Jesus came and spoke to them, we know that from, from Romans 1:18 and many other passages. Even in, even in our legal system, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, not a defense. But by bringing the word and by being the word incarnate, Jesus revealed their sin. He made them more guilty. The choice was clear, repent and turn to him in faith or run deeper into sin. And the world chose sin, revealing their hatred for Jesus and for his father. And the same will be true for us when we lovingly and humbly come to somebody and confront them about their sin. We are giving them a choice. We're not really giving them a choice. We're actually exposing the choice. And in some cases, by God's grace, they will repent. We can praise the Lord. And people become born again through the power of the Holy Spirit or given repentance as a gift from God. But at other times, they're just going to dig their heels in and run harder after sin, compounding their guilt. Finally, Jesus says in verse 25, but the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. There was no excuse for hating Jesus. He lived a perfectly sinless life. Now, of course, none of us have that as an excuse. There's many causes 
for people to hate me because of my sin. I know that's true of you as well. But I trust that we will all walk in repentance, confessing our sin to the Lord and to one another. And then for us in the church, forgiving one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. But there was no reason why anybody could have hated Jesus. Just try to suspend logic for a second and, and look at the situation from the perspective of an unbeliever. from somebody who was not born again, from somebody who is, is still dead in their sins and trespasses, just think about how illogical, even just on that level, how illogical it is to hate Jesus Christ. To hate God. To hate the one who offers the free gift of salvation. That's what these people did who walked alongside Jesus. The very ones who had experienced physical healing from him, the very ones who had ate the food that he made. Hated him. And that is equally true for those who are continually walking in hatred of Jesus today. But the only way, the only way that somebody could be set free from that kind of blindness because of their total depravity, because their total inability to choose what is right is through an act of God's mercy. So we're here this morning as those, most of us, I trust, as those here who have been acted upon by God's grace, who are walking in repentance and faith, who are eager to follow the example of Christ because he died for us. Now in a moment we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. But even, even as we sing, even as we sing praises to the Lord, I, I pray that you would examine your heart before the Lord. And then where you see that you have fallen short, as we all do, even when you fall short in your devotion to God as we receive the Lord's Supper together, that you would ask forgiveness you would ask the Lord to fill up what is lacking in your life. You would ask that your sins would be removed and that, and that as we trust through the cross that, that the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. As we look forward to his return. Let's pray together.